Oscar Poker. So let's uh, begin, if we could, uh, by ch- jumping right into topic number one, which is a poll that a woman named Maria E. Gates conducted mm-hmm. uh, of over 500 responses. Now, let me understand, this is a poll that was supposed to uh, part- partly uh, counterbalance the impact of that disliked and, re- and, and, and dismissed uh, 100 Greatest Films uh, poll by the BBC. And, um, and of course, no women were included in that list, as you noticed. But then she what reached out to 500 people. Can we understand? Is this only 500 women that responded, or what? no, 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 everybody? Lots, yeah, okay. it was it was men and women. But the mm-hmm. idea was, you know, pick the you know the greatest films by women. But the difference right. between I'm not sure how the BBC's American Film Poll was done, but the Sight and they, Sound Poll, you're only allowed to name 10, and then they. They rank them out of the ten that you submitted. I think, with her poll, there was no limit on how many you could submit. Yeah. Okay. Um, you just gave her all mm. of your favorite right. films by women, and she ranked them. Um, mm. Not ranked them, but she counted the votes of how many right. got what. And, uh, and you had a, um, a diplomatic thing to say about the, 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 the. I'm looking at a list of thirty. Uh, excuse me, twenty films. And uh, at the very top, and the and the uh, the thing that is disturbing a little bit is that the very top uh, film directed by a woman is Clueless, because I guess that was uh, people see that not so much as a uh, uh, a great film that uh, or or one that, but basically a film that captured and it said something about the zeitgeist of the mid '90s that was catching something, and and Amy Heckerling caught whatever that was that thing about about. Um, a blase young women kind of you know gliding through life right something. it was a it was a um jane austen um yeah take off it was funny it was it was yeah. it was a great movie and what for what it was it was great uh, and yes it had a big large cultural impact to the generations that came after us you know it's, right, it did, right. definitely didn't affect my generation because we already had fast times at ridgemont high and you know we weren't really mm-hmm. uh clueless you know, it's good. I'm, I'm not going to mm. criticize it. I'm just saying that it's unfortunate that it has to land at number one because it does sort mm-hmm. of, uh, I think, sort of, you know, what's the word? Uh, it dilutes the power and impact of, of really good female filmmakers, I think, by you say, okay, well, Vertigo and Citizen Kane are over here and then Clueless is over here. Like, mm. there's just, <laughs> there's no, they don't even live on the same planet. Mm. So, um but but I the mean, very unfortunate thing I would have um, um, put um, uh, possibly the, the I would probably have put myself Zero Dark Thirty at the very top, followed by the Babadook, mm. followed by 
You know, you know what was really interesting? Uh, a film that I thought was uh, very ballsy of Mary Harron with American Psycho. That was oh, number five it. here. That was not a woman film, but it was very, very strong stuff. And good, I really respected movie. her for that. I didn't actually like it that much, but I respected that film See the, quite the, a lot. Oh, me too. I, I think it's great. Um, mm-hmm. I love the tone of it. I love that, that she had kind of that kind of daring to make a movie like that. And there are a lot of films by women that are like that. One of the yeah. two problems women have in Hollywood is, number one, when when people criticize them, like if you criticize Angelina Jolie's broke, Unbroken or you criticize this list, um, you know, people think that you're condemning all women mm-hmm. um, and you're stopping progress for women. But the problem is that by not criticizing Clueless at number one, you're treating women like they have some major handicap, like they're blind or... You know, they made the film with, they didn't have any arms or any legs. And isn't it Uh so great that they did this good job, you know? Uh And I just, I can't, if you really want to compete, if you really want to play with the big boys, if you really want to be considered one of the greatest of all time, you don't make excuses, you don't, you know, pat Uh on the back, you compete. Yeah. Um, And you make great films, period. Not great films that had big cultural impact, but great films, you know, which women have made. But... I mean, well, you mentioned, by the way, that um, Angelina Jolie's uh, Unbroken. Is that on this list? I don't see it. No, it's not. No, not nowhere okay. near it. Well, it made me, again, that triggered a thought because I was asking myself, what is going to be, remember how that was the film that everybody had at the very top mm-hmm. uh, after Boyhood, of course, which was absolutely going to win Best Picture um, all through the uh, season. Right. But before it was Boyhood is the absolute favorite of the of the prognosticators it was uh it was look at those all those early uh grooves of gold and and tom tom o'neill lists they all had uh, broken up there because it was you know had the strong theme it was about survival and it was about uh and it was about angelina you know uh, spreading her wings and, and really showing us some strong chops and it just was going to be devastating and we were, everybody's going to get up and cheer and then they screened it at the wga on doheny and it all fell into a heap <laughs> Well, I think the reason people were predicting it um, was that it was Roger Deakins and the Coens, and they figure, well, what does she have to do? She just has to stand there and look pretty. You know, Barbie goes to the movies. Barbie makes a movie. And these guys will take up the slack and make the movie good. I think that's what they were counting on. Um, but, the, you know, again, it wasn't a good movie, nowhere near a good movie, but and it certainly wouldn't have made anyone's lists, I don't think, unless they were being really patronizing and condescending and... Um, but, you can be patronizing in a positive way by saying, well, we love you, we support you, we certainly endorse your celebrity, and we want to have some kind of association yeah. with you. But so therefore, you, we assume your film is going to be a Best Picture contender. Right. But when you try to argue with people in Hollywood, um, David Fincher calls them um, uh, you know, pigs rooting for truffles. You know, that's what they are. They're, <laughs> they're just <laughs> trying to find money makers. They're just trying to mine movies that go, movies that are good, movies that are great. You know, you can't just, like, whine and say, well, why aren't more m- women making movies? Um, you have to be able to say women can make movies just as good, as, just as well, just as artistically daring and brilliant as men. And here's a list of movies. And right at the top is one of the greatest films of all time directed by a woman. Well, you can't really do that with this list. Yeah. <laughs> because Clueless is sitting in, and that might be everybody's favorite movie. That, mm-hmm. that was polled, but you can't say that it's the greatest film of all time directed by a woman. You can say that about Citizen Kane or Vertigo, but you can't say that about Clueless. So yeah. I think yeah. if she ever does it again, she should make sure they do a solid 10 when they submit it. And I think uh-huh. the results would be different. 
I also would uh, would step back, and I, I think that a, the film that made a big a, a big uh, tactical error, as Selma did in uh, deriding the reputation of, of Lyndon Johnson for no real reason other than the fact that she just arbitrarily wanted a bad guy to push back against Martin Luther King. No, that's not I true. I think that that one. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, that isn't true. That isn't why she she did it. It's actually um, LBJ did resist and he did say everything that he did in that movie it just didn't happen exactly in that sequence like there are a lot of scenes that are left out but in fact lbj was on the opposite side and he did give he did tell martin luther king to wait he wanted to push through other programs so it's not that it was a lie and it's he not did not call j edgar hoover and have him sick uh him on on martin luther king and tape his intimate conversations and uh, and sexual encounters with other women in motel rooms. Right, well, you can... You he can... didn't do that. That's a, that's complete bullshit. Well, that's, that's not true. Movie. I mean, you don't know that he didn't, but you can't say he did. I mean, you can't say it either way, because he... The, J. Edgar Hoover was monitoring, and J. Edgar Hoover did. Why are you giving her this? Why are you bending Just, over backwards? I'm not. I want her you to a, hear a this. She made a mistake. She really... It was not first-rate filmmaking. I disagree. I think that, that it's not a mistake, and, and J. Edgar Hoover did report back to LBJ... He did, and so whether I know he reported to him. Of course, he did, being the FBI director, and they had conversations. But you know, there's nobody in that thing would in that uh, administration, Joseph Califano, those people who were speaking, that said that uh, that LBJ connived with the FBI director to tape and get incriminating evidence against Martin Luther King to compromise him. That that is that is vile to say that. I well, think. you know, I think that people watch a movie a different. I didn't watch that movie and come away with it saying, "Wow, that LBJ sure was an asshole." I watched walked away from it saying, "You know, it's great that someone finally gave Martin Luther King, you know, his due." Honestly, I felt that way, but I understand. It was that just a good enough film. It wasn't that great. It was a good good film, but it was just you know to put it up there at number four. That's all I'm saying here. We're talking about the greatest films directed by women. It's not a number four in that. I'll, I'll give that to Lost in Translation, or at least the top ten. I'll say that with a piano or, you know, I think that it's, it's one whatever. of the most ambitious movies on that entire list. It's one of the few, other than Catherine Bigelow's films and a couple of others, that reach beyond the circular storytelling of female and male relationships. Um, I'm just bored of that with women. It's like, why, why do they keep telling that story? over and over again, love stories, you know, relationships gone wrong. It's like, here are the men <clears throat> making movies about, you know, great American icons about history, you know, directing epics. And women are just on the same track. And it, I don't think that they can ever break out of it until they become more ambitious like Ava DuVernay. Incidentally, uh, speaking of interesting relationship movies involving strong women characters, there's... Um, a critic, I won't name him, but he was uh, telling me, uh, he told me in an email, and I talked to him about it afterwards. He says that if I see, if there's one female performance that really seems to be, uh, have strength and, and passion and something that's going to turn your head around, just woven into the role, it's the Elle Fanning role as the trans transgender teen <laughs> in uh, About you, Ray, right? You mean someone, someone already saw it that you know? No, no, that, that's, what, that's what got my interest. I, I, I called him. I said, you've seen this? And he said, oh, no, no, I'm just going by the trailer. I said, well, I don't think, number one, and please tell me what you think about this, that you, you can't have two transgender best actor, actress nominees in a single year. I just think people have this system in their head 
one is okay if it's you know we're not going to go for two not just because it happens to be a trending topic and everybody's been and you know because of um of of of, of, um, of bruce jenner i mean i meant to say caitlin jenner you know right. just because it's happening this year that we have to have two it just seems excessive and i'm sure that that sounds as like bigoted to some people but i really don't I find it, uh, you know, a little tedious that this is uh, like the, the the topic du jour, and therefore, uh, you know. So what do you what do you? Well, do you, I think that I was surprised to see when Tom asked us to put up our gold derby predictions, and we had mm-hmm. a little bit of a back and forth on it, an argument on Facebook, and and everybody sides with Tom, nobody sides with me. That I think it's too early to predict, but. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, he said, we were out front with Birdman at this time. And I said, you really weren't. And I looked back, and it's not true. They had unbroken a lot of them, and boy, <laughs> they did. So give me a break. But, I'm sure um, they did. But how anyway. Ma- how many were saying boyhood early, though? Were they I all was, saying boyhood early? I was. I have to eat a big, steamy pile of shit on that one. I'm sorry, <laughs> because I kept saying, no way is any other movie going to win. So I was 100% wrong. So I don't mm. think that I can sit there and stand in judgment of anybody. Mm. And my predicting is not right i was wrong about that um i was totally wrong i thought that that it would go a different way and it didn't but um the thing is is uh l fanning is put on supporting there so, okay good good call there is is there a lead in that is is um naomi watson is, is she the mom right naomi Watson. so is she the mom or is it like a two-hander where it's like they're two supporting characters um i i would figure that if tom has her in supporting that he knows because he's talked to the publicist, you know, yeah. about it, mm-hmm. what they're going to put her in. But I was surprised by that, too. I thought for sure she would be lead. But um, but if she's going supporting, that's a whole different thing, you know, that we're talking about. Well, it's the movie's called About Ray. Ray right. is uh, Elle yeah. Fanning's character, and yet they've got her in supporting. This is the old dodge that so many publicists do. It'll work better because she's younger. It's a smaller film. If we put her in supporting, she has a better shot. And I'm sure they're right. But, I don't uh, of know. Of course, you have to I see mean, the film. So. I don't see how you can call a movie about Ray and have um, and have her be supporting, like you say. I just it yeah. seems it's just like en- the end of the tour seems weird to me to put Jason Siegel when it's about him. You know, but, <laughs> it's but, certainly a two-hander. I mean, they're totally even those guys. Right. The Although they do arguably start with. Um, with uh, Jesse Eisenberg in New York. So you could say, well, it begins with him and it ends with him and it starts and he talks to his girlfriend. Then he goes to Illinois and meets uh, David Foster Wallace. So therefore it's really his story about me. You know, I guess they could, that's how they're probably justifying it to whomever. And maybe it's one of those things where it becomes, um, you know, more like who's the bigger star, you know, if Elle Fanning isn't that big and Rooney Mara, same thing, like Kate Blanchett's the bigger star. So she's the one who's going to get the lead. Right. And Rooney Mara is going to go supporting. Um, and that's mm. why they're putting John Cusack in the lead for Love and Mercy and Paul Dano in supporting. I just think it's a weird yeah. thing because it's you're going to end up with all these lead performances in the supporting category. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's weird that the critic just sort of said right out front that that was going to be the one performance. Well, it just struck him as such because it seems like the kind of uh, you know breakthrough or something that people will notice. And I said, mm. and he didn't respond or didn't have any strong opinion about there being uh, a willingness to, you know, celebrate and nominate uh, two transgender film uh, for transgender performances in a single year. So right. we just well, kind of dropped that. Yeah, it's strange. Well, anyway, so Tom put out his mm. 
Gold Derby predictions, and he posted it on Facebook and Twitter, and I, I was surprised because I thought, oh, did, did all the experts, quote-unquote, start to put in their predictions? And it wasn't. It was user predictions. Users have The Revenant out front, Leonardo DiCaprio winning Best Actor, Anne, and Anne only predicts films she's seen. So her list is only movies she's already seen. And, and um, Steve... Yeah. Uh, both Ed and I have t- Steve Jobs at number one. I just right. don't want to jinx the Revenant. I think if you put it at number one, you're going to jinx it. <laughs> but um, well, you know, it's going to. The thing that's interesting about putting the Revenant up there uh, is that nobody gets to really refute or kick it around until pretty late in the game. So it sits there hovering yeah. as the big thing that may be, uh, you know, who knows? That everybody uh, wants and, to. And take. Joy too. Remember, Joy is very late in, uh, entering also. Right, so. right. And you know, truth is, if history's any indication, none of them can win. The only ones that can win are films that have already been seen by ter- time of Toronto. Yeah, so. and that's what the historical thing absolutely points out. You are entirely correct to summarize and make that clear. But uh, that's only what has happened, and life doesn't necessarily follow uh, what should or has happened. It, it, it can't ignore all precedent uh, right. if, it, if it feels like it. Like know? Chris um, Tapley always says, it's only it's only a pattern until it gets broken. You know, yeah. it's only it, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way until the end of time. Yeah. It only means that's how it's gone so far, and here are the reasons why. Number one, when it takes a lot of time to build momentum for thousands of people to see your movie and vote on it. Mm. And number two, it, it, it's been given enough time to be seen, argued mm. about, debated about, and then mm. redeemed. And if you don't have that redemption time, like Zero Dark Thirty didn't have, you can't mm. rally back. You know, you can't, you don't have enough time to do that. So even if people eventually reevaluate Zero Dark Thirty weeks later, the ballots are already in. Right. So... Uh, and then you can't stop the momentum, you know. Mm. I was really surprised by Birdman's momentum. Everybody, in fact, in the Oscar game, except you, Jeff, but you you have to be dismissed because of wishful thinking, because you wanted yes, Birdman. Yes, because I'm obstinate, and I don't really listen to anything, and therefore, I just happen to like it, and it's one. It doesn't mean anything, because <laughs> well, I never <laughs> believed in, you just like in any abilities to, you know, pre- predict. I really don't, sure. so I just lucked out, that's all. And you're wise about that. You pick what you like to win. You know, it's not like a... But everybody from... Even Chris Tapley, who loved Birdman, and who, you know, he he didn't think it was going to be Boyhood, but he was picking something else, some other movie Uh to win. Um, He was Uh unbroken, and then he was... Same with Scott Feinberg. They were... I think they were iffy on Boyhood. Like, I think Uh they knew it was a weak contender, but they didn't didn't pick Birdman. Everybody thought it was too, too dark, you know, to win an Oscar. Yeah. For best picture. Well. But they were wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> and the big thing, I uh, remember the big thing was, um, what a, what a, the, the big reaction after it won wasn't so much that it won, was that Sean Penn made a politically incorrect uh, remark about who let, who gave this son of a bitch his green card before saying, you know, that Inuritu had won and that Birdman had won. Yeah. And that was the next day's topic. Not that, you know, wow, it won after all. The, the topic was Sean Penn's incorrect way, and he needs to be slapped and spanked for saying that. It was so dumb. Such a fake controversy. Yeah. 
Um, the same with Patricia Arquette when she said, you know, equal pay for women. Then all of a sudden, people started, you know, attacking each other. It's, it reminds me of when I tried to, when I was moving and I had to put my cats in the bathroom. I had to put the two girls in there, and then uh -huh. I tried to put the male cat in there, and the two females attacked the male like he was attacking them, and they got uh -huh. into this huge cat fight, and and the poor little male cat ended up with a bloody foot. That was uh -huh. like the <laughs> Patricia Arquette thing. Everybody started uh -huh. attacking each other. Why isn't she mentioning women of color in her speech? You know? <laughs> It isn't That's good funny. enough that she just said mm. that. They had to then attack her. It's like, no wonder we never get anything done. Mm. So there's a, I thought that the funny story that you wrote here, it was hilarious, actually, about the guy who <laughs> spent the whole night telling you, <laughs> predicting, like, that it was going to be great sex when you actually got down to it. Oh. That That is, a, doesn't that automatically tell you that anybody that boasts about how great something is going to be without doing it right away. Yeah. You know, anybody that talks about it rather than does it is always full of shit. Right? <laughs> I learned my lesson the hard way, but I was so young. <laughs> I was about, what, I was like all of 21 or 22 or something. I didn't know. Mm. I mean, I didn't actually think, oh, yeah, this is going to be really great. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, but I didn't think it would be that bad. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Let's talk about Gold Derby's user predictions right now right. for Best Picture. Okay, the revenant we've we've just discussed is a uh, an expected thing, and it's got a good position because uh, one, uh, it has been passed along by certain parties that it has been seen, or at least been seen by a very select few, and uh, without any vested interest, people are saying it's definitely got it. It's really a strong film. It might might be you know best picture, and also as we just said, because it's coming very late in the season, we've been yeah. told by injury too that it's not going to be. Uh, ready to show until December. I don't believe that. I think he has to have it ready by roughly, what, just before Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, he has I think, to I think it's it going to be seen by November. And here's what oh. I've heard about The Revenant. I've heard that it's um, just, like, sort of beyond anything anyone ever thought that Inaritu could do. I mean, again, we're like that guy talking about sex. It's like, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to, like, build something up so much. And so people True. are disappointed. you do not. Right. But that's what I heard, like, you mm. know, these incredibly long, you know, takes. And I've heard that, you know, the the authenticity he's going for, you know, really makes a huge difference in the film. Like, he could have done everything green screen, but he's doing it there in the snow. Mm -hmm. And that Tom Hardy and Leo are just, like, you know, off the charts good. And mm. that, you know, it's just, I mean, this is what I've heard from people who are working on the movie and also from people who have nothing to do with the movie that, yeah. um, that just right. say it's... What they've seen so far is just mm -hmm. um, that it's, yeah. you know, really hot stuff. Yeah. Okay, so number two predictions of the users of Gold Derby is Hateful Eight, and that is completely, uh, I, I don't think, I don't, they just associate swagger and, and, and confidence and a certain distinct signature with Quentin Tarantino, which, of course, he does deliver each and every time. But this is a... Uh, Basically, a dialogue-driven sitting around and testing each other and trying to be who can be more swaggering, who can be bolder, who could be um, who can threaten the other guys more uh, decisively or conclusively. It's really not anything that goes that leaves a, a single room after the intro, which will take he'll probably spread it out as long as he can, probably take 15, 20 minutes. But once they sit down and, and they're just start drawing with each other. That's all it is, mm. at least as far as the performance of the script that I saw in downtown Los Angeles last year. He may have, you know, changed it, opened it up, made it into something that goes outside. Who knows? Right. But it's, it's really not. I, I really seriously doubt that's going to be a Best Picture contender. Who knows? People are, you know. Tom's user predictions here. They're 
he numbers them. And so 126 yeah. people are predicting the revenant. That's 126. That's more than anybody else. Correct. And only 20 are predicting hateful eight. Somehow mm. it lands at number two. Maybe that's because they're predicting it at number one. Um, and then Joy is number three with 28, 28 users. The Danish girl at number four with 26, and Carol with 34 at number five. I think that's right. I think Carol is going to be one of the top five, and I think Todd Haynes will get a Best Director nomination. Steve Jobs at number six. Bridge of Spies at number seven. Suffragette at number eight. Um, Inside Out at number nine. Nope, not going to happen. And yeah. Spotlight at number 10. That's what they have, but I'm, they're not going to put an, an animated film for Best Picture when they have an animated category and a preferential ballot. The only time animated films ever got in is when they had ten nomination slots, and they only have five, so forget it. It's not going to mm. get in. Right. Um, so why do you think he has them listed in this order if the second-rated film in terms of the number of viewers that have selected it, why is, not, why is Carol not number two? I don't understand the system here. I don't either. Um, there's and then no, Joy would be number three and Danish Girl four. That that I'd more or less agree with. You'd have to look at the user's individual list to be able to understand, but there doesn't seem like there's a link here to uh -huh. click on who the users are. Um, uh -huh. Wait, I know how I can do it. If I go to the Oscars and I click on user's predictions, there we go. Uh -huh. That's how you can tell who has what. So yeah, okay. I think it's I, I think it's ranking who has what at number one. If you click on users right now, the top twenty four all stars. Uh -huh. Some have joy, some have bridge of spies, some have hateful eight. The one poor guy has the walk. Yeah. Right. Carol, the revenant. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, Carol, the revenant, joy, Danish girl. Those are sort of their predictions, so it looks like a lot of people mm. are predicting joy. Because that trailer was very, very effective. And um, what I was told, this is through a Fox person to a source I've spoke to, spoken to, is that joy may seem, if you do a little reviewing of what it's about, which is about the woman, a still living, still young woman who invented and marketed to great success, the Miracle Mop. And also one other device, it was, oh yeah, the the, uh, the friendly hangers, the, uh, the uh, well, I forget there was a name for it, but it was, you know, the kind of hanger, that, you know, that, that has a kind of a pad on it, and they're cheap, and anyway. So that was another invention of hers. So it's basically a, a struggle to survive story, and I think everybody kind of relates to that. Anybody's been through a tough period in their life, that tenacity, determination, you know, uh, will get you through the tough if you stay with it, and that's that's what you kind of feel. And but it's but this person, this Fox person, obviously vested, said that it's about much, much more than just the Miracle Mob. Right. There's all kinds of stuff that's thrown into this, and it's so I we we know David O'Russell. He's not going to just do a success story of a marketing campaign or a product. He's going to obviously use this as the way to get into all kinds of things. Right. Right. And I think she, I mean, I think she's the, she's going to be the key to it. How much they love her performance is going to determine whether or not it wins um, Best right. Picture, I think, uh, right. is how it's going to go. Right. He usually picks films, his films are usually, you know, slightly subversive, so that the lead character is, is kind of a, a, just a little bit unlikable. You're not really rooting for them. Right. 
And I think that's going to not be the case with Joy. I think you're definitely going to be rooting for her by the end, and that's probably going to be a lot to do with her performance. Right, right. So um, I'm really looking forward right. to that one. I can't wait to see it. Um, <clears throat> now, do you think that Steve Jobs is at, at the number six position, at least as far as Tom is concerned, um, uh, and also um, Danny Boyle is number seven in the Best Directors? That means that they, people are suspecting that the theme of the genius uh, innovator who is also a dick when you know him yeah. personally has been explored and kind of rejected by the Milk and Toast Academy when they chose the King's Speech over the social network. What do you think mm. of that yeah. theory? I don't know. I mean, because we have Danny Boyle directing it. And when was the last time Danny Boyle made a movie about an anti-hero asshole? Uh, let's go back to his early career. So, train spotting. Train spotting, where there was kind of they were kind of dicks because they were heroin addicts, but that, they weren't really assholes as much as uh, there's there's one asshole, of course, the one who was losing his temper all the time. Right, you know, what's it, his name? It has such uh, an, an emotional thrust to it, and and so did train spotting. I mean, not mm-hmm. train spotting. I'm obviously Slumdog Millionaire, mm-hmm. and 127 Hours. Like they're feel good movies. He makes them. I think if Fincher had directed Steve Jobs. You'd be looking at a, you know, a great partner piece to Social Network and something about an anti-hero who changed the world in terms of how we communicate. Yeah. Um, but I think with in Danny Boyle's hands, it's going to be more redemptive. So that's why I'm predicting it right now to win. Well, I should remind that having read the script, it is redemptive in the sense that you do feel the emotion and the willingness to let the emotion in on the part of Steve Jobs towards the end. It's all about him and his daughter, whom he denies through much much of the film. Mm. And that kind of comes together at the end, when she's older. So. Right. Well. And that's pretty much the whole thing. The rest of it is all uh, trade talk and, and, and technical talk, but it's fascinating and fun, and it moves, and it's just, it just like bang, bang, bang. You know, it has that velocity, that, that punctuation all the way through. Yeah. It's, a, it's pure pleasure from just a reading standpoint. Who knows what well, I've been predicting the Oscars for so many years. This is my 16th year, and I'm, you know, I'm bored of the same old. So I kind of try something new every time. Last year I tried only predicting movies I had seen to win. That bomb blew up in my face. <laughs> <laughs> so this year I'm trying something uh-huh. different, which is I'm uh-huh. I'm testing my theory of it has to be seen before October-ish. So it's going to have to be a movie that either comes to Telluride. Um, or Toronto, or both, or Venice, and Telluride, or was seen in Cannes. So I'm when is the Hateful Eight opening, Sasha? Isn't that a Christmas thing also? I think that's a last minute. Yeah, I think that's... A so minute. you've got Joy, Hateful Eight, and Revenant, the top three, all of which are opening Christmas Day, all of which are probably not going to be seen, at least two of them anyway. Well, remember uh, last year... Until Hope's... Nove- mid-November, so there goes yeah. your theory. It can't, it's probably not going to work this year. No, right? I don't think so. You always say that, and it always turns out to work. Like, remember, everybody was like, oh, Into the Woods, Unbroken, all these <clears> late breakers everybody thought was going to win, we're going to, you know, win Best Picture, and of course they didn't. So they, cr- okay. they, they land, and their expectations are too high, and critics start to tear them down. You, when you're the front runner, you're, you're like Hillary Clinton. Everybody wants to take a stab at you, you know? Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. not, you're... You know, you want to be Bernie Sanders when you're entering the Oscar race. You don't want to be Hillary Clinton. So, you know, Bernie Sanders was Argo and Hillary Clinton was Lincoln. And, um, you know, it's like that. So 
I'm not mm. saying Bernie Sanders is going to win the election because zero chance there. But I'm saying that you know, in the in the Oscar race, it is within the liberal bubble, and so you are talking about uh, that kind of mentality at play. So I'm thinking Steve Jobs <clears throat> is going to be the underdog, and some other poor movie is going to be put up in the front runner spot, and people are going to try to tear it down, and eventually they're going <clears throat> to settle on. So best actor, we've uh, I, I did a thing uh, briefly about uh, Leonardo yesterday. It seems like he's yeah. been around for 23, 20, well, if you uh, count this boy's life, 22 years. He's been really at it for a long time, and he's been up for, what, three or four Oscar nominated, best actor nominations. So this is uh, three anyway, and so this is the... This might be it for him. And what do you think? Uh, I don't think people want to do Eddie Redmayne again. I really can't imagine that they would want I don't, that. No way. No chance. I'm sorry to say that, but I mean, maybe there's a chance. What do I know? Listen to me. I think I know everything. But um, I think yeah. that, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I read your piece, and I agree with you about Leo. I think that he's paid his dues. And, and so who, could we, who would we imagine would be his um, opposition? I think that... Mostly Fassbender, I would think. Maybe. I'm going to say Donald Trump. I'm going to say... Um, Donald Trump, Trumbo, um, okay, uh, Brian Cranston, as as his possible opponent, okay. and that's and that's mainly due to the fact that he's a he's such a friend to actors. People love mm-hmm. him, and that's going to be you know that's going to be hard to to uh, compete with. I think, but we'll see. I got to tell you, I heard something the other day. On the record um, or off the record? I heard uh, what? On the record or off the record? We might want to be off the record. I heard that um, the Trumbo is uh, not quite the film it could be. Oh. Should be. Uh, this is strictly just talk on the phone. I don't know. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying anything. But that's there's a little bit of a of a weakness element there, possibly. Um, um. So just take that for what it's worth. Well, who uh, who did you hear it from? Todd McCarthy. Oh, he's seen it. No. He just heard the. He talks to people on his level, in Europe, in the, you know this. He things get around somehow. Wherever that started, it could be just one person, and maybe they didn't even see the film. Who do, what do I know? Hmm. I don't know a damn thing. It's just that he's put a little note of caution in about that. Who knows? But, you know. Well, you know those those kind of um, those movies are never for some reason the the I don't know why the blacklist was so exciting and yet it seems to have yet to produce a really exciting film about the subject. Like why can't there ever be a good, is it just because writing about writers is boring? I don't think there's a, um, it's basically you have the same story when a blacklist is shown and that, and except for the front, which was interesting. Right. Uh, that is, uh, that was a pretty good film. Martin Ritt made that film with Woody Allen and Zero Mostel. But the most of the blacklist movies, when you or, or documentaries, it's basically they came after some relatively innocent people who had humanistic ideas in the 1930s when Stalinism and communist cells were uh, rising up in our culture in response to the horrible depression, thinking that maybe capitalism has flaws, maybe we need to have another idea, and uh, which is totally surpri- not surprising to me that people would think that when people are on bread lines and. and starving and unable to afford a place to live so right. you know that's that's the that's what happened and, they, and, and the people who were uh, called in front of HUAC were basically some of them defied them you know and they said you know I'm not gonna you know and they went to jail and uh, and some people uh, went along with it and they were friendly with like you know Kazan and whatever so that's 
I don't know. It's, 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 it's not quite that final uh, stroke, that final uh, dramatic arc that leads somewhere. It's just to be able to just tell the committees to go f themselves. Mm. It's not that great uh, of a story. It's 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 stirring, I guess, and it's certainly not. It's not dismissible. It's a, you know, it's real right. history, and I, I appreciate it. So that's that's the only feeling. Yeah, and and you know this is a weird season because it seems like there are a lot of movies that are a lot like each other. For instance, people are going to be pairing um, *Hateful Eight and *The Revenant* because they're both you know kind of cap you know movies about you know that certain time period and they're in the snow and there's a lot of gun violence. So, but they're totally different movies. Oh obviously. wow, that's really different. Those two. It's I hadn't even thought about them being in the same. I know, but, but when you uh, look you at it, that. it's like just, the snow and the guns, yeah, and so yeah. that's one. And then, and yeah. then this, then you have um, Black Mass and Spotlight, you know, which yeah. both about the Boston, yeah, and then yeah. Boston accents, and you know, the press, and then you have Trumbo, and you have um, Youth, which isn't about blacklisting, but it's about movies about Hollywood, you know. So mm-hmm. you're gonna have mm-hmm. those two kind of. Um, what did you mm. think of Youth, the movie, from Cannes? Uh, I didn't really love it. I thought it was, uh, uh, you know, the, the ending, as I recall, is that he does go to London and he does conduct the video. It's about a guy who's resigned to being retired and out of the game, and it's all in the past, and it's about a person's spirit or lust for creativity, accomplishment, you know, uh, is reignited. But a lot of it is just kind of sitting around with Harvey Keitel looking... Uh, taking walks and you know and, and talking to Rachel Weiss and the, the, the most stirring part of it is when the actress the faded actress played by Jane Fonda uh, lets uh, Harvey Keitel have it and tells him exactly where she's coming from yeah. when he wants her to be in right so that was what got me it wasn't really the, the I didn't have a problem or dislike or feel disengaged from Michael Caine's story but I didn't feel it ever really um, you know uh, cooked things something up into some kind of critical mass. Uh, you know, it didn't it didn't seem to go over the waterfall for me. Right, right. No? right. What do you think? I think it? It, I, I love I love the performances. I did enjoy the characters. Um, it's just sort of a sad lament. It's a movie that you could define as a sad lament. And I'm just I know people like me are just going, well, this is what Academy voters are going to eat up with a spoon. But you know, you don't know for sure that that's going to be the case. They don't always do as you know, people say that they're going to do. Um, plus, it's not going to Telluride, and that I'm just wondering about that. Like, I know they can't go, mm-hmm. but why? Why wouldn't they go? Even it, it, well, it, it's an indication of how enthusiastic the distributor is. If they feel they've really got the the gold, uh, the golden fleece here, they they would. I would start it out with Telluride if I were them. But uh, mm. but they they just may simply feel it's a better launch to be in Toronto, and that's not a doesn't mean anything necessarily. You and I and our from our perspective, we feel that the the really good stuff starts in Telluride, if possible. Yeah. So maybe we're not necessarily right about that, but we believe that. I sense that, but maybe not. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, you know, Sony Classics not bringing two of their films to Telluride. I think that means something. I think that it means something. They always go there with their strongest stuff. They're bringing, of course, uh, Son of Saul there, but they're not bringing significantly the Tom Hiddleston. I uh, saw the light uh, film about um, Hank right. Williams. That must indicate something to me. Uh, maybe maybe it's wrong to say that, but it indicates that they're not radiantly confident about it. And I think it also suggests uh, that uh, 
their other film, which I was initially very high on because I like the sound of it, and it's based upon a really complex, fascinating political journalism story called Truth about mm-hmm. the uh, you know the collapse of the story about uh, George Bush's time in the National Guard that uh, resulted in Dan rather resigning early and the woman who was his producer getting canned. So, um, and even with Kate Blanchett in it, you know. But anyway, it didn't. That didn't seem to have worked out as well as it could have. Who knows? And then but. our brand is crisis is also not going to tell you right. Yeah, um, yeah, that was going straight surprising. to Toronto. Um, but so, yeah, it's. I guess it's a mystery. But but we do also have to consider that Telluride chooses the movies. They don't. The producers don't choose the festivals. So, I mean, it could be that they just didn't get picked, right? Also. Oh yeah, uh, maybe that uh, that uh, that uh, Julie and, and Tom just didn't think it was uh, a right fit, you know, for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And we won't know until Telluride starts, which um, because they they announced the lineup the day before the festival. How long ago was it when people were saying that and actually meant that that there was any real suspense? No, I think that what maybe five years ago. Yeah. Right. But but there was a lot less suspense the last, what, two, three years? I remember having, you know, I come to Durango, I get on my plane, and by that time it's online, and I get down, and I, and I remember looking at the uh, at the final list, and I remember being hugely disappointed. <laughs> I'm saying, this is, this is not what I was hoping for. <laughs> I know. No. It was all, you know. I hope it's not that way mm. this year. I really do. But, I mean, we're running mm. out of options here. It's not like some movie's going to drop from the sky. We already know what's going to, to Toronto. You know, we know what's going to Venice, and we know what's coming out. So, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, are there any questions left unanswered? Um, the only the last two that I was told about, of course, were the Sidney uh, Pollack documentary, which our friend Chris Wilman says he's seen twice and he's looking forward to seeing again. Mm. And uh, with Aretha Franklin has said she's going to try and stop because they haven't given her, presumably because they haven't given her enough money. Oh, um, but it's called Amazing Grace and it's about a concert that Sidney Pollack, the late Sidney Pollack, shot over two nights in January of 1972. And it's supposed to be a really great documentary. She, uh, for what it's worth, Aretha Franklin has said that she is quite entirely fine with the film and she's quite happy with it and she is proud of it but she they just won't uh, pony up the money she feels she's owed no. hmm. anyway. so you're waiting to see if that goes to tell you right but nothing sort of big in the best picture department like there's not going to be any sort of surprise dropped on us i was told by a mutual friend of ours that there is something that i have written about that i have not been told about and that he's heard about so I, I i can't take it any farther than that but he says yes it might be one one thing that we can you tell me off the record what you think it might be i i couldn't even i was trying to imagine what he was talking about but you know i can i can i really i was thinking it over what, what what's he talking about <laughs> i hope what it's not the tom hiddleston movie. you know and that one's going and it's a big one and you've <laughs> talked about it you know, oh you know, okay how, so that's how, how it went that one's going it's a big one and you've talked about it he says, I've mentioned it, you know, but I've mentioned pretty much everything that's mm. a possibility. It's not, Brooklyn's not going, apparently. No. Right? No, not Brooklyn. But so, I mean, we're thinking, I mean, what could it be that isn't already premiering in Toronto, though? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what, what, he's, what he's on about. Mm. So it does, doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but uh, the other thing that I was um, told about the other day was, of course, the... Uh, the diva who cannot sing movie. There are two of them, 
one with Meryl Streep and one that right. has been made by uh, Xavier Gianoli. It's called Marguerite. And that will be, I'm told, at Telluride prior to its already announced um, Toronto debut. All right, excuse me, no, it'll, after its big debut at Venice, that's what I meant to say. It will be at... Um, um, now I'm getting it confused. What's the... Oh, yes, right. They said that Sydney's film would be in Toronto. That's going to be in Telluride first. And the, uh, and the Gianoli film, Marguerite, which is about the uh, notoriously mediocre opera singer Florence Foster Jenkins, that is going to Venice first. Mm-hmm. And will be reviewed there, of course. And then it will go right to Telluride after that. What I was told. Well, there are yeah. several forces at play here. Like one big force is the Telluride people, the patrons, don't like it that it's become this big Oscar circus. And I think that in a way they would be very happy if the festival um, scaled back its Oscar positioning. Mm. That's one thing. Another force is Toronto feels cock-blocked by Telluride. And so they're putting a lot of pressure on... Filmmakers and they know that if they go to Toronto, they stand. Or yeah, Toronto, they stand a better chance of making a lot of money and reaching a bigger audience than they do if they just go to Telluride, which is you know mainly feeds into the Oscar mm-hmm. race. So right. you know, um, and more media people there is a lot more coverage. More mm-hmm. you'll, they'll read about it the next day everywhere. You get a lot more red carpet coverage, all that stuff. Right. So, that's so they don't they want they to value. be punished by not being able to go to Toronto. So a lot of them are going to choose that. Oh, yeah. you know, when they're looking at the bottom line. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. It's a sensible way to look at things, but there's um, there's a there's a conversational current that be always begins at Telluride, and it has uh, in in years past been a, a very persuasive uh, factor. And uh, you can get past it, you can ignore it, but it it certainly has seemed to be a factor in years past, going all the way back to the days of mm-hmm. of uh, Slumdog Millionaire and whatnot. So it's. Uh, it's, you know, it's their call. They're not wrong. They're, not, they're professionals. They know what they're doing. They're not, uh, right. I'm not questioning their judgment, but, you know, I, I just... I agree with you. I mean, for mm-hmm. uh, for the Oscar race, especially if that's what you're going for, there is no better place to debut, either that or Venice, because, yeah. you know, when people see a movie early, whether it's Gravity or 12 Years a Slave or Birdman, you know, the enthusiasm just skyrockets at a place like these two places, which are re- kind of hard to get to. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to pay mm-hmm. a lot of money to go to these festivals. That's why you get better prominence. And it's not really the case with, with Toronto so much. Um, right. Yeah. So it's harder to stand out there. But um, Telluride is always under ideal circumstances. Good movie, and a friendly audience, happy people, good press. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm and, looking and, and, and the final thing I'd like to say in this is uh, I, I thank you for... I, it took me a while to get into it, but I really was struck by that uh, brilliant... Stephanie Sacharik, uh, Village Voice Review of Grandma, which we didn't mention, by the way. Right. And I just love that line, which I'll never forget. It's going to stay with me. And I hats off to Stephanie. You wake up one day to find that you're 1,000% you and that your good qualities have enmeshed so fixedly with the bad stuff that it's hard to distinguish which are which. That's really brilliant. That's mm. funny. Shoot, anyway. that, that review is, I think, one of the best oh. things that I've read. It's certainly the best thing I've read of that movie, and it's one of the best mm-hmm. things I've read that she's ever written. And it doesn't even seem like she broke a sweat writing it. It just is just a beautiful review. And yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm you know glad to see the movie, or rather Lily Tomlin's performance, getting such attention. I do think she's she's headed for a nomination because of the buzz around it. And... It's just a, you know, she's a, she's a acerbic kind of annoying person, 
but by the end of it, you do appreciate her, her worldliness, you know, um, I just, you know, women like that, they're like, you know, human beings that live that long and are that wise. And you're, you're one of them, you know, I'm not saying you're, you're Lily Tomlin's age. I'm just saying that it's more like, you know, they become these, you know, interesting, well-rounded people who have, who have just experienced so much in their lives. And, you know, this movie more than any other to me really shows that. And I can't believe Paul White's in this climate where everybody makes movies about men doing great uh-huh. things and that he would choose to make a movie about a 75 year old woman. I just think it's incredible that he wrote and directed it. You know, why, why would he do that? And he said that it, the idea had been kicking around in his head for a long time. And, and when he spent time with Lily Tomlin, it, you know, she inspired him to make this movie. And I didn't get the feeling from grandma that she was 75. My understanding that she was 65 plus somewhere oh, okay. in there. Yeah, you know? probably. No, Lily Tomlin, how old is she really in, in real life? I think she was born around 1940, possibly. Oh, okay, yeah. Maybe it is 60s, yeah. She, maybe not 75. That's, that's older. That's way older. That's great-grandma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, yeah. Her, and her granddaughter, remember, is what, uh, 18, 19, something like that? Yeah. I mean, she's young, right? So she wouldn't be that old. I mean, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, I'm just... Um, uh, I guess it's really... Uh, I'm, you know, you just convinced me that I guess if Charlize Theron does not... Uh, uh, start a campaign, which she surely easily could do. She'd have to do that, and I don't... Uh, I, I really loved her in that film, and I think that was one of the strongest uh, women roles, and I thought it was uh, remarkable that pretty much everybody agreed across the... Uh, from C to Signing She, that C to Signing... Shining C, that mm-hmm. she is the star of that film more than Tom Hardy is, and even the ads seem to say that, you know, mm-hmm. from the beginning, or she's front and center, and he's in the background with a mask on his face. Um, you know, but and, I, and I'm and I'm not going to even mention my personal emotional favorite, uh, Amy Schumer, because no one, uh, everybody made said I was full of shit and I'm stupid and I'm clueless for having even brought it up, but I got the same strong emotional. Dramedy, not comedy, but dramedy vibes from her in that film, um, uh, Trainwreck, that I did from uh, Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Learning Playbook. And I, she just lifted me and got, got through to me, and she moved me, and she made me laugh, and I thought it was one of the great performances of the year. And I hate the thinking that says you cannot even talk conversation, you can't even bring it up in the conversation, that this kind of performance can be... Uh, you know, celebrated as a, as, a, yeah. as an Oscar nominee, and it's and it really just I hate people that that think that way, but they do relentlessly, and well, um, that's that's I guess that's the end of that topic. But I, I just got <laughs> shouted down. But I'm I know what I feel about her. Well, that's good. It's just that you know that the they don't the actors don't really respect people who come from comedy. They they don't mind comedic performances. They love funny actresses. And they nominate them all the time, but they anybody who's a comedian first, they don't consider a quote unquote actress. Kristen Wiig might be one of the Melissa McCarthy is also sort of broken through that, but um, yeah. but usually they they prefer people who are actors doing comedy roles. She was an actor doing the heart and the sadness and the angst thing in that funeral scene. That really touched bottom. It yeah, really did. I agree. She and they be- said, well, that doesn't make any difference. We don't really pay attention to that. We don't care. She's a funny lady. She does stand-up. And that's just, so she forget it. We're not talking about it. Right. That's the way they're thinking. 
So what do you think about Best Actress? Right now on my predictions at Gold Derby, I put Carrie Mulligan, Lily Tomlin, Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Blanchett, and Brie Larson, only because I figured that with, you know, somebody really good at the game pushing her that she has she's going to have a leg up from someone who isn't getting the same kind of push. Um, uh, my sense, incidentally, it's uh, interesting that the Tom O'Neill gang thinks Lily Tomlin is in fourth place. They've got Julianne Moore in, in number five, and I think that I've been hearing, and I don't want to say anything more than hearing, which means nothing, that Freehold doesn't have these uh, springboard qualities, which say it's not good enough to really get her. I don't think she's going to win a second time. I don't think she's going to get nominated a second time for what I gather. But um, mm. you tell me. I, 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 um, um, and also, uh, I think uh, we're sensing a little vulnerability as far as Carrie Mulligan is, is concerned because of what we have discussed right. already, which is that uh, she won't be out there campaigning very much because she's uh, delivering a child in some, t- what, late October, November. That's right. And, I forgot about and that. she'll, you know, she'll want some time, obviously, to be with the child and not run around. So, you know, she might show up if she gets nominated by late January or mid-January or February, maybe, possibly. Uh, but uh, the movie has to, of course, be really strong in and of itself. And that's... Um, course we don't know anything about it yet yeah you know we discussed that on a phone call but we never discussed mm. it on the podcast but um, oh, okay. I'm just thinking yeah I have her in number one but I, I had forgotten about that that she won't be doing the dog and pony show so I'm not mm. sure if if uh, if it's worth switching it out to predict somebody else in the number one spot we were we were saying it was probably going to be Jennifer Lawrence for that's her. what I believed at this point I suspect uh, yeah. but but boy sure I sure love Carrie Mulligan's uh, She's so, I mean, I became such, I, even more of a fan after seeing her last May in Skylight, the David Hare play. She, I mean, she just mm. carries that whole thing. It's her, it's taking place in her apartment. She's the, the woman with the, with the I mean, the, uh, it's, it's a magnificent tour de force for her. And she had done it in London. I was just so, you're always so impressed with people when you mm. see them on the stage rather than the film. The film only lets people show what they have inside uh, to in small little doses, whereas uh, a play really lets you go to town. It's she's, wonderful. She's, incredi- she's a mystery, that Carrie Mulligan, because the, the most of the time on screen, the roles that, that she gets cast in and the, the kind of characters she plays, they're so vulnerable. Mm. They're so, like, kind of delicate. <clears throat> but when you meet her, she's not like that at all. Like, she's tall. She's forthright. She has a very deep voice. I mean, she's, mm. she's so impressive in person. Yeah, um, and most people wouldn't know that unless they, you know, actually sat down with her and spoke to her. But it's interesting to me that she's that kind of person, and she's able to play these kind of characters that are so different from who she really is. You know, where did you uh, interview her for? What did you? When did you speak to her? I didn't really get to interview her, but I, I was at a roundtable in Cannes for Inside Lewin Davis, and she came. Oh, down okay. There. She's just. Beautiful. I remember that. God, she's the- stunning in real life. I mean, beautiful, sexy. You know, deep throated. Yeah. She's. Deep voice, not deep. <laughs> oh, that party we went to. Yeah. That thing. Oh, yeah, that was mm-hmm. good. That was good. Yeah. That was yeah. a good event. Remember that. Yeah. So why do you think they have Kate Blanchett on top in Best Actress? That, that That's misguided, don't you think? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there, she's way ahead, though. Look at that. Mm-hmm. 153 versus the next uh, Jennifer Lawrence down in 44. Why are they so adamant about her? Because it, it sank in after Cannes and it's been sitting there for all summer that Carol's quite the 
tour de force for her. Maybe, maybe they were pre- they were predicting her even before people saw the movie, you know, and started praising Rooney Mara. Um, but mm. it's an interesting idea to think that Rooney Mara's they have predicted Rooney Mara to win supporting and Kate Blanchett to win actress, so they're predicting the two of them together to win, and that's mm. possible. I don't think that. From what I saw of Kate Blanchett's performance, that she outdoes her Blue Jasmine performance, and I think that that's really what makes the difference when you win, especially when there are other actresses who haven't ever won that you're competing with. Uh, among them, Lily Tomlin, who is beloved by the industry and um, you know gives a great performance, and Grandma, and she's she's already shown that she's w- willing to do the publicity circuit. She's already shown up everywhere, um, very graciously talking to people, and. Um, and as horrible as that is, that dog and pony show, it's, it is like a political election. If you really want to win an Oscar, you kind of have to be there and you have to meet people and you have to shake hands and you have to go to these awful parties. Yeah. <laughs> show exactly. up on the red carpet. You have to interview with people like me. You know, you have to do these things. And, um, mm-hmm. and we just said that Carrie Mulligan probably won't be able to, but Lily Tomlin, Jennifer Lawrence, they will. They'll be right there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So... Who's, uh, um, who is doing Lily Tomlin's... Uh, campaign if you will you know i don't know i haven't i haven't been contacted by anybody so i'm not sure who it is but um isn't grandma a sony classics film is it yeah maybe you know what i i gotta say one thing before we shut down i know that we've gone on too long again and you're gonna have to cut out a whole uh, lot of stuff but i'm looking at the supporting actors on the gold derby people and you know my I, my teeth just start grinding when I look at this because they've got poor Paul Dano, who's I think should should have been uh, nominated, should be a Best Actor contender because he is the soul of Love and Mercy. But it's smart, and I agree with those who are saying it is smart to put him in uh, in for uh, Love and Mercy's uh, for Best Supporting Actor. And here he is, way down at number thirteen. Now that's mm. just reprehensible on the on the on the part of the. They just don't seem to get. Or care, or they, they choose to, to because he's not a big star, because uh, you know they don't think that Love and Mercy is a big enough film, or you know it doesn't give them the right vibe. But it's awful. And by the way, um, the talk about Black Mass, you have probably read. I think it was Michael Fleming who wrote this. That the big standout performance, apart from Johnny Depp, or alongside Johnny Depp, is Joel Edgerton. Mm-hmm. According to what you know, Fleming wrote. I don't. I don't know a thing, of course. But he's there at number seventeen, way down the list. And as far as um, uh, uh, Jason Siegel's, uh, you know, you know, I got to tell you, I saw uh, the end of the tour a second time the other night because I wanted to give it another chance. And he, despite what Glenn Kenny uh, feels about Jason Siegel, was that he he doesn't uh, really do uh, do the right kind of performance, and the, and the movie seems to be nodding over and over to the fact that he that uh, David Foster Wallace killed himself. Uh, he's really pretty good in that. In that, uh, if you just take it as a performance on, in and of itself, and a lot of people feel that it really captures the interview uh, process, and it's very, it's fascinating in a psychological way. Jason Siegel is at number eleven, so they're all way down there. And who do the people like? And they like Tom Hardy because they because they like Tom Hardy and the Revenant. They like uh, Idris Elba, Beast of No Nation, which I hear he's. You know, he's pretty strong in this. This is a good, strong film. It's going to be very tough to sit through, but it's a strong film. And then they go for Samuel Jackson and The Hateful Eight. This is, this is pathetic. I mean, with their, their, their thinking process. Michael Keaton, because he was big last year, so they got him in number four. They got Kurt Russell in The Hateful Eight, number five. It's, it's really, <laughs> Jesus, well, what low-life these, are these are people the... are, you know. 
I think we've answered our question, though. I mean, I think that they're on there because these are the, this is how many people have chosen them to win. Like, yeah. let's say over in the supporting actress category, one person has chosen Helena Bonham mm -hmm. Carter for Suffragette to win, and so yeah. she's at number seven with one user predicting her, even though other, even though Kristen Stewart has six people predicting her and she's at number eight. So you know, it, it it's not they don't they're not they're only going by who's predicting whom to win, not yeah. nom be nominated. And I think those are different things. I think predicting who's going to get a nomination is very different from who's going to win. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't think they're going to yeah. do two from the hateful. I mean, we don't even know anything about the hateful eight. So to predict two, I do. I know what it is. I've read the script and I've seen it performed. I know I have a pretty good idea of what it is. I mean, it might be a little different. But there's no there's no ambiguity about what it is. Yeah. Well, I, I'll send you the script if you're interested. No, you don't like to read script. But, don't, no. but it's it's very very plain what this thing is. I, I learned my know. lesson with Charlie Wilson's War because the script was so good and the movie was so bad. And that's true. It. Wasn't that odd that, yeah. that, that it felt that way? I remember that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a disaster. Even though you know, Mike Nichols, rest in peace. It just wasn't yeah. a very good film. So, yeah, I mean, none of this is, is, there's no there there with these predictions. It's just a game, you know? It's just a fun game people play, and it's interesting from that, just speculative. But right. there's no, I mean, the difference between the users and people like us is that we're factoring in who's behind what project and who we know is going to give a hard push mm. and who isn't. And that does make all the difference, you know? Right. I am going to call around and ask who Lily Tomlin has engaged, if anyone, and see okay. what's going on with that. That's a good story right, right there. We didn't get to Peter Bogdanovich, but we don't really have time, so... No, we could do two hours every Sunday if we wanted to. <laughs> we, it's very easy to talk to you. We can go on and on, but let's just, you know... All right. All right, my friend. I guess we right. finished it. Okay. Okay, so have a good Sunday. All right. Take care. Okay, bye. bye. You've been listening to Oscar Poker with Jeffrey Wells from HollywoodElsewhere.com and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. The bumper music was Plundered My Soul by the Rolling Stones and Headrest for My Soul, AWOL Nation. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.
je peux mal. 